Welcome to The Brink of Impact, a podcast by me, Maggie Stoller, me, Rachel Whaley, and me, Chelsea Lowe, three aspiring social entrepreneurs living in Chicago. Our goal is to energize young people to build careers in social impact. We are here to interview others just starting out in the social sector to share ideas and resources for launching your career. We hope you'll continue the conversation after this episode by joining us on Twitter at Brink of Impact. On this episode, we will interview Allison Chen, a fellow at Design for America. We will discuss pay in the nonprofit sector and share recent headlines in social impact news and recommended resources. And now we will discuss this week's headlines in social impact news. My news headline this week features actor Wendell Pierce. Wendell is most famously known for starring in The Wire and Treme. In Wendell's most recent work, the HBO movie Confirmation, he plays Clarence Thomas opposite Kerry Washington's Anita Hill. During the infamous 1991 Senate hearing on Thomas's Supreme Court appointment, when Hill accused him of sexual harassment. Wendell Pierce is investing in a $20 million plan to help restore Baltimore. The construction project is planning to develop 103 apartments and provide job opportunities in the city's art district. The project will include a job training program to train those who are disenfranchised to be a part of the labor force that builds the apartments. Wendell, a New Orleans native, has also rebuilt 40 homes and restored several local parks and playgrounds that were destroyed in his old New Orleans neighborhood during Hurricane Katrina. The city of Seattle is partnering with a number of local nonprofits on an initiative called Jobs Connect, an effort to support homeless individuals that provides connections to full-time employment, support services, job training, and local storage and hygiene facilities. The initiative will serve thousands of individuals over three years. Yet another state budget gripe. The Chicago Tribune reported this week that organizations that provide care to people with disabilities are reporting dire employee shortages, which has led to the closure of group homes across the state of Illinois. These staffing shortages are a direct result of the average worker wage of $9.35 per hour as determined by state funding. Hashtag budget cuts. The resource I'd like to share this week is Coalition Impact, which is a purpose-driven co-working and community space located in Chicago. They host monthly networking events called Coalition Exchange, which combine low-key networking with a presentation from a nonprofit or social enterprise business. I have always met really interesting people at these events. Check out the events calendar at coalitionimpact.com. Allison to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is finally here. The podcast is launched. Um, so some background on Allison. Um, our team met Allison about three months ago mm-hmm. at a happy hour event um, hosted by Coalition Impact. Um, so networking's real. We started talking to her. She was super excited about the podcast idea. And so now um, she's been working with us for the past three months now um, doing market research and mm-hmm. UX development for our website, for our podcast, all those really great things. And now we get to interview her, which is so cool. Yeah, it's exciting. You guys are like the only people I've really kept in contact with from a networking (laughs) event. So I'm very proud of myself. I know. This is like a first for our team, too. (laughs) We're excited about that connection. Um, So we want to start off just by um, asking you to walk us through 
your journey. Um, mm-hmm. So how you got to where you are now, where you're from, where you went to school, and then what specific social sector experiences have kind of influenced your path? Mm, nice. So like everything. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I'm Allison. Uh, I am originally from New Jersey, and I went to school at Rhode Island School of Design, uh, which is an art school. So it's kind of strange that I'm coming from an art school perspective. Uh, I I didn't originally start out knowing or thinking that I'd work in the social sector. But basically, um, while I was at art school, I studied industrial design, uh, which is basically the practice of making utilitarian things. Uh, So that was really fascinating to me, to uh, to use my creative skills for something useful. Um, But what I noticed is that oftentimes um, we valued making beautiful objects, which tended to be very expensive and exclusive, over uh, the potential impact that making useful things can have for people, communities, um, uh, just things that really need that sort of um, that sort of work, you know? And so that's when I started looking more into social impact work. Um, I was involved with one big project called Solo Decathlon, which is this competition for solo architecture. So I was kind of involved from like a construction and like marketing standpoint. And we um, worked together with Brown and a university in Germany to design and literally build a solar powered house. And so that was oh like, my gosh. yeah. And, um, and we competed, there were like 20 other teams. It was cool. And it was my first experience, like making something real. And mm-hmm. also like, I learned a lot about, um, like the clean energy aspect of like the different solar panels and we used like solar thermal energy and it was a passive house. So it saved like enormous amounts of energy. Like, um, it was really interesting. Um, and while I was a student, that's when I joined Design for America. Uh, basically, DFA gives you the opportunity as a student to combine creative problem solving and something called human-centered design with um, community-driven work. And so some of the projects that people work on include um, helping children learn about diabetes and manage their own diabetes condition, or um, helping doctors and hospitals like maintain hand hygiene without sacrificing their attention to their patients. Um, and so as students, you can go out uh, and as part of the human-centered design process, um, do research about the problem, um, find out some areas where you can improve it, and then leverage design and engineering and business skills to create a product or service or installation or make an event or you know any, anything that like you think people can make like you just make it and then you implement so cool. it in the community. So um, I was part of DFA as a student and now I work there. Yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. So yeah, I, I'm so, I'm curious about um, Design for America. I'd never heard of it before mm-hmm. I met you. Mm-hmm. So it seems like very, you know, hands-on, you're building these things, you're making these things, it's human-centered, mm-hmm. and now you work there, so you mm-hmm. kind of were a student that is now working for DFA, so tell me about what does your day-to-day look like? What are you actually doing for Design for America every day? Yeah, my job is, like, I have a fellowship at Design for America, and so the way it works is it's both a national network of people, like, like when I was a student, mm-hmm. like, working on these projects and, uh, and, like, just, like, connecting with like-minded individuals and also there's a nonprofit organization 
that's headquartered at Northwestern University that sort of facilitates uh, and manages and uh, grows and empowers this network. Um, and so I work there um, with like working in a combination of marketing and web design um, and also mentoring and facilitating the connections between the students. So this is kind of um, like a really interesting job because we're a really fast growing network. We currently have 29 DFA studios. Wow. Uh, nationwide. Okay. Yeah. How and many in Chicago? Just one, Northwestern. Got it. Um, but there might be more in Chicago. Uh, yeah, I can't say which yet, but. Ooh, <laughs> we'll <see>. exclusive. <laughs> Only here on Brinkley. <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, at all these DFA studios, um, like, it's all like a lot of my work is remote. Um, because they're all like student-led organizations mm -hmm. like on these college campuses um, and they do a fantastic job like these students are really driven really motivated they're really talented they come from all different backgrounds like we have students from engineering design business uh, social sciences and humanities like everywhere um, and um, I'm there to support them first of all so we send them resources um, we keep track of what they're doing um, we have calls with them, like if they need to seek some guidance in terms of like how to connect with someone or how to like, um, like manage the group, um, we're there for them. And they're a great resource to each other as well. I feel like that's something powerful when you're young and in college, like you want to connect with people um, like yourself and like both like professionally and personally. Um, so that's really awesome. I think we have like 900 people like wow. working on projects and like in these student teams. Yeah, right now. And you can um, kind of just facilitate those connections then, and that's, like, what your job... Yeah, yeah. It's, um, like, day-to-day, -day I'll, like, like some people might ask me random questions, like, can you look over this work, or, like, do you have time for a call? Like, we, uh, we want to talk to a new mentor, like, stuff like that. Um, we're, we just recently redesigned our website, mm -hmm. so, like, sometimes day-to-day -day, I just, like, make sure that that's, like, <laughs> still up and running. Like, we have, like, a lot of content to go up there mm -hmm. um, in terms of, like, featuring different projects that students do, especially. We have a new saying for DFA, which is, like, design innovation for social good. Like, we're, like, at the intersection between, um, like, innovative work and, like, social, se social sector. And, like, the most important part of innovation... Um, well, there are two important parts. <laughs> uh, one important part is that, like, ideas don't come from a stroke of genius. Right. Uh, and another thing is that you need to work with the community. You can't decide that you know what's best for them. You have to work alongside them. So, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> no, it sounds like the work that you're doing is so incredible. And you seem so passionate when you talk about it, too. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, so it's really um, I'm curious, too, you know, DFA is your day-to-day, -day, but what mm -hmm. other projects do you find yourself working on in your free time? So recently, um, I've been taking this professional development course at General Assembly. Um, they do courses and stuff like design, um, like web development, coding, um, marketing, all that stuff, um, like mo mostly for the tech sector. And um, in my UX design course that I'm doing there, like I knew that I wanted to challenge myself, so I've never worked in health before, so um, I decided to design a website for caregivers of those with Huntington's disease. Mm. Um, 
I got that idea because my dad also recently transitioned into the social sector as well, actually. Uh, He's working for the Cure Huntington's Disease Initiative. And this is a very rare degenerative, like, neurological disorder where, like, over the course of, like, 10 to 25 years, if you have this genetic disorder, your, like, cognitive and physical abilities basically degenerate. Um, And it's, there are a lot of issues in terms of, like, so there's no cure, there's not even a way to slow down a disease. And so the way... My research led me to realizing that, like, first-time caregivers have a really difficult time. There are often, like, family members of these people with Huntington's disease, and um, they, like, it's a huge emotional burden as well as a sort of, like, knowledge drain. As in, like, there's not a lot of resources out there for them, so, like, they might not know what to do, um, like what type of food to feed them to prevent them from choking, or like, like they might not expect like random mood swings or like depression or like mm-hmm. feelings of rage, and, and that happens. So uh, I'm trying to figure out a way to like bring that community together to um, to help them connect and look out for each other and also share knowledge for different ways to treat symptoms. So that's an ongoing project that is going to wrap up, like, uh, next month, hopefully. So we'll see how that goes. Awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so my next question for you is what keeps you motivated within your work in the social sector? Uh-huh. Totally. Um, I think a few things. I think having friends who are equally passionate about this work is really important. I think... I think, like, I see a lot of work, especially, like, in tech, there are a lot of products and services out there that don't, I don't feel like they're, like, really solving a problem, and so, like, I kind of feel motivated to, like, be part of that group of people who, like, want to address that, who, like... I'm so glad that you're bringing your talents to this sector, because it (laughs) is so needed, I feel like those with those tech skills. Um, it's seriously lacking in the nonprofit sector. So we are glad that you're here. So my next question is, what makes you happiest? We always talk about self-care on the podcast, and we want to nice. know, what when are you your happiest? Uh-huh. Um, I feel like this is, like, really corny, but when, when I'm in family and friends, it makes me my most happy. Definitely. Yeah. Um, what is the last thing that you binged? So we ask people this question too, uh-huh. so that can be a podcast, a television show, a food, music, <laughs> whatever. What is the last thing binged. that you binged? I used to binge watch so much. I do it a little less now. Uh, last time, I think I was like cleaning my room and binging Bob's Burgers. Yes. Uh, which is such a great show. Such a great show. Not only because it's hilarious, but it has a lot of great female characters right like I'm very surprised (laughs) I I read an article once about Bob's Burgers and um I think just doing a character analysis of Tina Mm -hmm. and how she's brought to the conversation like a new identity to like female teens exploring their sexuality definitely it's just such a cool I think she was originally going to be an awkward boy going through puberty but they changed changed it it to an awkward girl going through puberty and I think that's amazing it's so incredible (laughs) I commend that binge watching absolutely 
Um, so we always want to share um, ideas and resources and um, all that good stuff. So I'm curious if you want to share any of the things that you love or any mm -hmm. resources that you really enjoy with some of our listeners. Totally. Um, cool. So I have a few different kinds of resources yeah, that I'd love to share it. with you. Um, so the first type is kind of like um, design process guides for like mostly for like social impact. So of course I have to like talk about DFA because DFA has a process guide. Um, and that's the that's a process that we share with our students um, that we encourage them to use. And so I found that to be very effective. Um, there's the IDEO like design toolkit obviously. Um, IDEO is a huge design consultancy uh, and IDEO.org is a nonprofit like part of it if, for, for those of you who don't know. And of course Stanford D School has great resources as well. So all of those can help you guys if you're interested in applying the design process to um, a social cause. Um, there's a conference every year in Providence run by students at RISD and Brown called Better World by Design. And that's a, another really great resource for like design and social impact intersection. Um, they have a lot of great speakers um, every year, great workshops and panels um, and like especially since like it's all students it's like very very professional so definitely suggest it to people yeah those are my resources Allison you are inspiring me to become a designer this is great <laughs> I'm gonna literally go look up all of these crazy. resources um so what Allison for you is the dream job with all of these skills all these talents that you have what um what's the dream kind of work that you would love to be doing I think it'd be cool if I can just like hang out at a makerspace with like other kids and like make stuff with them like I don't even know what I would make I would just like fool around yeah I really like hanging out with kids um so just like whether it's like electronic or low-tech or like we 3d print something uh, that'd be great that sounds so dreamy <laughs> that's so cool and then what um what's next for you I know the fellowship is ending soon mm -hmm. with Design for America. So are you looking to stay in Chicago or continue to work in design? What, what is next? Mm -hmm. um, probably Chicago, definitely design. Um, I'm looking to be a UX designer um, to work on this type of work. So whether it's in education or health um, or any other sort of topic, I'm really interested in like designing websites and apps and services that, that uh, aid that. So we'll see where exactly I am come September, but um, it'll be really exciting to like explore this type of work. Um, thank you so much for <laughs> joining us today, Allison. It's been so fun talking to you. You offer such an interesting perspective to the sector with your design background, and we loved talking with you, especially about Bob's Burgers. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best part. <laughs> no, seriously, like it, it's such an honor to be here. I think what you guys are doing is really exciting and inspiring, and it was seriously my pleasure to, to have a conversation with you today. Oh, thank you, Allison. Yeah. My resource for this week is Andrea Lewis's Self Love Saturday YouTube video series. It is my go-to for whenever I need a pep talk. Andrea Lewis is an actress, writer, and digital content creator. She is also the founder of Jungle Wild Productions, an entertainment company focused on a new generation of original television, film, and digital content that showcases women, people of color, and the LGBT community. 
Andrea started the Self Love Saturday YouTube series to teach people to gain confidence based on her own personal experience dealing with low self-esteem, fear, and anxiety. Some video topics include embracing natural beauty, creating a gratitude journal, and embracing uncertainty. So today in our lifestyle section, we are going to be talking about pay in the social sector. And before we jump in, I want to clarify that when we talk about the social sector in our podcast, we're talking about more than just nonprofit work. We're talking about social enterprises. We're talking about um, social impact organizations. So a lot of them are non-for-profit, but some of them are for-profit, just working towards a social impact mission. Um, but when we talk about pay, um, it is kind of typical specifically for nonprofits to um, be scrubbing to get those dollars into our pockets as young professionals. So specifically for those nonprofit direct service jobs, um, how do you weigh different factors of compensation? You know, there's pay, but there's also benefits, there's work-life balance, there's mission-driven work. So I'm curious about your personal take on this. For me, I think, I mean, pay is important to pay bills at this phase but of my life, but also I weigh pretty heavily the work-life balance piece and the mission-driven work piece. So for me, the ability to be totally unplugged when I'm not at work most of the time um, is something I really value and I really enjoy being able to just enjoy my other pursuits and not have to worry about work when I'm not at work. So that's huge for me. And the mission-driven work is also really important. So having a reason, you know, when I'm on the train in the morning and why am I up and going somewhere, it's I have a reason, right? And it's not, it's not just to pay my rent. Um, and that means a lot to me. Yeah, I think the biggest gift that I've been given in my work this year has been flexible work hours and being able to come in by 10 a.m., by 10.30, and knowing that I'll put in the time elsewhere, because we do work a lot of nights, we have events, we work weekends sometimes. I know Chelsea has experienced that in previous jobs. But that is a really great flexibility that they offer to me instead, or, or I guess while compensation is not um, where I'm sure they'd like to, to, to pay me for the skill set that I bring. For me, I'm still struggling with understanding why that... I guess these type of nonprofits undervalue their staff so much financially. Like having a mission that I relate to and having flexibility are great, but if I'm doing twice the work that I would do at a for-profit organization, why are you paying me half the salary? Like I'm always confused by that and kind of offended by it. So if I'm a communications or a marketing associate at a for-profit organization and I come and do the same job plus more for a nonprofit, why do you undervalue me so much just because it's a mission? Or, like organization. So to me, I kind of look at it as like kind of disrespectful from certain nonprofits that they undervalue their staff so much financially. I understand that there's this balance, there's this mission part, but I don't think that that makes up for the gap in wages. And especially like with the pay gap with women and a lot of nonprofits being filled with women, um, I think they could, they could find money for it. I'm curious if you were offered your dream job tomorrow, it was everything you ever wanted to do, but the pay was not what you wanted, would you turn it down? It depends on where it is. Yeah, and I, I think, it's, it's your dream job. It's like fairy godmother. But if it's my dream job, aren't I getting my dream pay? Well, that's, okay, so that's a really good question then. So when you're considering, the, and when you're in the job search and you're looking for jobs, like how much 
how important, which sounds crazy, but how important is pay for you? I know some people are very focused on working for a mission they're passionate about, and and a lot of people maybe don't have to worry necessarily about income if they're with a significant other that can support them. I know that's something as women where it's a conversation piece, but I'm just curious about your personal job search, how much that factors in. To me, it's very important, the pay. I wouldn't say it's like the main factor. I would say like, you know, having up certain responsibilities, doing the work that I want to do and having growth opportunities is important. And yeah, I, I think it's important. And, and there, it seems to be a common theme within nonprofits that a lot of women that I've seen, at least, that are there for a long time or an executives in that position have that support and they're not financially independent. A lot of them are married to doctors and lawyers or come from very wealthy families. So they're kind of doing this as a hobby. Like I haven't seen women who are at this nonprofit. Like I just don't have those examples. Maybe that's just me personally, so. No, it's certainly a common thing, but um, it's a good segue I think into our next question, which is how, I mean, compensation in the sector is so complicated and layered, but how does it factor into your personal long-term plans to stay in the sector? Because it's so hard to retain millennial talent now. I think a lot of people go into the sector, put in a few years, and then kind of go private, more corporate, um, transition out. So how does, how does that factor into your personal decisions? For me, I think it d depends heavily on the life stage that I'm in. So right now, I recently graduated from college. I'm trying to build a savings account, but otherwise I don't have a lot of financial obligations right now. So this is a great time in my life to be doing this kind of work. Um, and so I think I suspect it will change as I go through different life phases. If I decide to go to graduate school and I have you know, tuition bills to pay or I have student loans to pay, that will, I suspect, influence my, my choice. So things like that, I think, will play into it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I am at a very fortunate place right now where my expenses are not super high. I am living, you know, our fellowship program provides a very modest living stipend, but I'm getting by and I'm able to actually save in small increments. Um, but when I think longer term, sometimes I just, and it makes me feel so guilty, but I'm ridden with the fact that it's an unsustainable salary and I can't walk through life. I can't spend the next five years working, you know, some nonprofits offer 25, 30, 35, $40,000, which is, you know, such a modest, you know, such a modest salary for the amount of work that you're taking on and the kind of responsibilities you have in certain roles at nonprofits. So I struggle with that. And I struggle knowing that it'll take a lot of more years to, and a lot of more time until you really get into executive leadership positions at nonprofits where you are making a comparable salary to, um, I don't know, kind of some other counter people in that same role in the private sector. But I, I just, I struggle with that. I don't know. Yeah, I struggle with that too because I'm interested in I'm interested in main, like building wealth and doing investing re, like pretty soon. Like I don't want to have to wait five years to have money saved to make an investment or mm -hmm. to help my family out or build wealth some other like some other way. So that's my struggle with it, and I feel like I'm very like turned off by this nonprofit that we're talking about, like the direct service. Um, yeah, it's. It's definitely left a, a bad taste in my mouth. But to go back to what you mentioned before, it seems like there is this theme of people in the sector feeling guilty for, for their decisions and feeling guilty for 
wanting to stand up for themselves or wanting to negotiate, which I don't understand at all. Like, I feel <laughs> no guilt at all about asking for more money or for, like, doing what I need to do for me. And I'm just curious about, like, why certain people, like, might feel that way. Like, having guilt for... I think, so, the underlying thing about, I feel like, about pay in the sector is you are, for the most part, serving a very under-resourced, under-privileged community. That is a broad term because nonprofits work in a lot of different capacities. Again, we're not talking about the NFL. But I, I think about, I think often you use that as a point of comparison for when you're thinking about what you're getting paid. You're not really thinking about your personal skill set and the time and the work that you're putting into it, but rather the community that you're serving. And you kind of use that as a base of reference because you see that you see the amount of income that they receive. You see um, the different struggles that they're kind of going through, you know, across the spectrum. We're working, this is a really broad term. But I think guilt is a factor because you see that the nonprofit is working towards that social good and, and they're striving to support those kinds of communities with all of the means and the resources and the money they can. So to me, it often feels like any money that would be going to me would be going away, like would be taken away from the support that would go to the community. And and to play off of what, what you said, Maggie, I think the, the other guilt piece is related and it's where the funding comes from for a lot of these nonprofits. A lot of them depend on grants from local or state government or from philanthropy. And I know that philanthropists, when they're thinking about where to donate money, they look at what percentage of the funds go towards direct service. And that can often be a really big factor in where mm -hmm. people decide to invest their money. And so if I know that, you know, increased salaries would then increase the share of the pie that goes to not, not the direct, mm -hmm. like, outreach to the community, um, that, that's hard to think about, you know, given that, that we're here and we're aligned with, with the mission that, that the nonprofit's working towards. Yeah, for me, I feel like I understand where both of you are coming from, but I always see it as, I always feel like I'm a role model and I'm an example for certain disadvantaged communities as like a black woman in some of these spaces. I feel like I can relate a lot with the populations that I've worked with in the past and me having wealth and me having this like status and respect within the organization as an example to that population. So I never feel, I've never felt that. And I'm just wondering if you all think that is like related to white guilt or like some something about like this like wanting to give, feeling the need to give back. Cause I never feel that like ever. I think it's tied to white guilt for me. I think it's also, I, uh, my upbringing was very rooted in the Catholic faith, and I think that um, that's probably not connected to my race, but rather my religion of giving back and being that example and serving others. Um, but it, but I don't, yeah, I don't know if white guilt certainly is a factor. I think, but it's such that's a really like big, like loaded like concept to talk about too, because I do think that a lot of people feel that way. And that's probably also tied to why they think they shouldn't be asking or advocating for themselves to have a higher salary when they're working in the sector. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. And I think I, I do think it's it's relevant how exactly it, it plays in, I think, as you said, is really is complicated and it's nuanced. But I think it's definitely it, it matters. And it's um, part of that decision. And I think part of it, what you were saying, too, about um, being raised in the Catholic faith and even just thinking about like a lifestyle for yourself. I think a lot about um, 
kind of the lifestyle that I want or that I envision for myself or that I aspire to. And then based upon that, the goals that I set for myself for compensation, right? So there's one version of that where you lay out a very kind of frugal, simple life mm-hmm. for yourself. And that can be very fulfilling and that can, you can accomplish all your goals that way and then not require significant pay, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's one iteration of that. Another one is, right, I'd like to do investing. I'd like to acquire wealth. I'd like to help my family, right? There's so many things there. And then that translates over to, well, in order to accomplish that lifestyle, my pay needs to be up here. So I think that's, that's the way I think about it a lot too, is like the lifestyle and the pay. Do you have a set like lifestyle that you know you want? I, I go back and forth about it a lot. I, um, in some ways, I really value the idea of simple living, right? I've done some backpacking, right? And I love, I, this is influences the way I think about this. And it, um, the idea of being able to literally carry everything you need to survive and, um, you know, have time to do things like enjoy nature and like talk to people and like look at the star, right? Like I value stuff like that. Um, I don't know how sustainable that is long term. And there are definitely days where I, I don't want that. There are days where I want a nice apartment and I want to be able to travel internationally. And that's very different, but um, it's always something I've thought about. In my head, I feel like I can have both. Like I really want to own a farm with like horses and chickens and like animals. That's a goal, life goal. But I really want to have a loft in the city too. So I always think, I never think or, I always think and. Like, and I can have both, but I have to build up so I can go back and forth. And yeah, travel. absolutely. And I think that's totally true. I just, I, to me, it's really important to think about the lifestyle first and make that choice and then make compensation based on that. I don't think I could ever just make the choice to like get as much compensation as humanly possible in any given year because that wouldn't, that wouldn't necessarily be aligned with like maybe the kind of job I'd have to do to get that compensation wouldn't align with the lifestyle that I want and that is important to me. And so to me that that's not a conflict I'm willing to take on. Yeah. I think overall it's important to discuss pay in the nonprofit sector. I think having conversations about, you know, our skill set and how much we value ourselves as professionals versus a sector that is underserved and serving communities that are underprivileged. I think it's so important to keep having this discussion with people. We've discussed it a lot with some of our colleagues, some of the fellows in our program, but I think it's such an interesting and, as Rachel mentioned, a really nuanced topic that is just so interesting and a very necessary conversation we need to be having. This week's resource is nonprofitwithballs.com. This is a hilarious blog detailing the highs and lows of working in the nonprofit sector. Created by Vu Lee, an executive director of a Seattle-based nonprofit, this website is always good for a few laughs and some great insight about nonprofit work. The Brink of Impact is created by Chelsea Lowe, Maggie Stoller, and me, Rachel Whaley. Check us out on iTunes, where you can find a new episode every other Friday. You can follow us on Twitter at Brink of Impact. Our music is Lazy Day by Go Soundtrack.